Hi, listeners. This is Understand South Carolina, a weekly news podcast from the Post and Courier. I'm Emily Williams. And I'm Gavin McIntyre. Today, we're bringing you important updates on the COVID-19 pandemic in South Carolina. So there are really two big stories to this phase of the pandemic right now, and that's the skyrocketing case numbers and the development of a COVID-19 vaccine. And while progress on the vaccine front is making people more hopeful about an eventual end to the pandemic, the pace of these case numbers is alarming. Case numbers are changing daily, and we're continuing to update them on the Post and Courier website. We'll include a link in the episode notes to our dashboard with a live map of case totals, graphs tracking COVID-19 deaths in South Carolina, and the latest news we know about the virus. Given all that we just described, we know this isn't an easy time. The pandemic has changed everything this year, and that's true for the holidays, too. But we want to bring you an episode that will lift your spirits, and we need your help to do that. We want to know how you're spending the season safely. Are you starting new traditions or adapting old ones? How are you making this time special for your children, your spouse, your parents, or other people that you love? If you have a story to share, we'd love to hear it. Record a voice memo on your phone of you describing how you're celebrating in 2020 and email it to us at understandsc at postandcourier.com. Thanks again to all of you for listening and subscribing. Let's get back to today's topic. First, we're checking in with reporter M.K. Wildeman about when South Carolina can expect to see its first doses of a coronavirus vaccine. The South Carolina Department of Health and Environmental Control for the first time gave the public a firm timeline on when we would receive a vaccine for the first time. And that will be between December 14th and 16th. So that's really exciting. This is something that we've been discussing all year, you know, when when the vaccine is available and that 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 timeline of just waiting for that. I'm wondering, too, can we just explain a little about who makes the decisions in terms of who gets the vaccine and when in South Carolina? South Carolina is sort of following what a lot of other states and what the federal government is suggesting. We have a vaccine advisory committee here in South Carolina, but they're they're really kind of taking their cues from what the rest of the states are doing. So the, the first groups to receive the vaccine will be residents and staff of nursing homes and frontline healthcare workers. So, so yeah, it's a pretty small group. Dr. Linda Bell, who is the state's chief epidemiologist, she described the amount of vaccine we'll get in this first distribution as very limited. And that's something we're seeing across other states too, not just in South Carolina, where there might be more ambiguity and where there might be differences among states is where we get into the later phases of distribution. So then there will be more complicated questions. My guess is that that's where we could see South Carolina start to defer from other states. And how, I I don't think we know yet. There are several different vaccines that are being developed right now. Do we know which vaccine South Carolina would be receiving first, or if we would eventually receive any of the others? Pfizer's is the one that DHEC expects to get first. And so that's the one just to jog people's memory that requires the really, really cold temperatures in order to store. And that vaccine has to be ordered in shipments of like a thousand. So it's a really complex logistical question. And do we know if the state has the equipment to store and transport? 
transport these vaccines? There, there are five sites for vaccine storage that have been identified for South Carolina. And then there's, there's like over 100 vaccine distributors that have been qualified. So everyone had to get certified sort of in advance by, by DHEC. And those five sites, actually, interestingly, DHEC is not releasing the locations or names of those places, and that's for security reasons. Even though it's it's great news to hear there will likely be vaccines administered in South Carolina, you know, as, as soon as next week, that that is for that small number, and it's a small amount, and focusing on people in those long-term care facilities and frontline healthcare workers. And we've been told it will be much longer before your average citizen, you know, can, can go and, and actually get this vaccine. Do we have an idea, roughly, of what that timeline could be? Are we talking... A month, several months. The timeline I've heard circulated is is sometime in the spring of 2021. All the best <laughs> advice at this point is that everyone who wants a vaccine should be able to get one sometime in 2021, which I know that's kind of a hard pill to swallow, but I think that's what we're looking at. What are some of the the questions that, that maybe you have or that you're looking out for in these next weeks or months? The question... I want to answer as often as I can is how much of this vaccine we're getting on a regular basis and who that's being distributed to, because I think that's going to be a moving target and people are going to need that information as soon as they can get it. And, you know, while we don't have all the details right now, that's why having a newspaper like ours is so important because we need to be asking those questions constantly to the point where we become an annoyance to the, to the health department. But yeah, that's what I see as my role and what I will be looking out for. We really have to follow up and make sure we're asking the hard questions about whether it's safe, it's effective. Everything we know about the vaccine right now says that you can receive it safely. But we know that people are concerned about those questions. And so we'll keep asking them and we'll keep providing you that information. My name is Dr. Kritika Kapali. I'm a assistant professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Medical University of South Carolina. I am also a emerging leader in biosecurity fellow at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and the vice chair of the Global Health Committee for the Infectious Diseases Society of America. The spread of coronavirus is speeding up again in South Carolina. For multiple consecutive days in the last week, the state has reported over 2,000 new cases a day. Parts of the country we're really seeing being affected by the surge are um, parts of the Midwest, particularly places like northern South Dakota, Utah. Those places, hospitals um, are at maximum capacity and they have had to, you know, start utilizing their field hospitals and places like California in particular as well. They've had to reinstitute their um, stay-at-home orders. Their ICUs are um, have very limited capacity. So in that respect, South Carolina is doing well, however, we we don't want to get to those types of situations where we have to think about doing things like potentially having to put elective surgeries on hold, which is what some places are doing. Overall, South Carolina, compared to the rest of the country, is doing okay. But that's also within the context of the situation where the United States is now having over 200,000 cases a day, which is very alarming. We have more holidays coming up 
later this month. What are some of those riskier situations that you could see potentially coming up later this month? Well, I think always with the holidays, you know, people always want to celebrate, which is understandable. And so you think about the holiday parties and the holiday gatherings, and those are all the things that are going to facilitate spread of the coronavirus infection. And, you know, with the cooler weather, people getting together inside as well is going to help facilitate the spread of the coronavirus. Those are the things that concern me. And then, of course, with the various holidays coming up, people wanting to be with family and friends. So again, traveling, um, the things that we saw happen with Thanksgiving, people now traveling again. And so with the higher rates of transmission that we're seeing all over the country, it just exponentially increases the risk of people getting infected and getting exposed and then transmitting it to other people. So it's just the combination of all these things are very concerning and not just for the various holidays during the December month, but then also as we look ahead toward the new year. I wanted to ask about a few of the activities that people might be doing around the holiday, aside from from gathering with family, and maybe what we've learned recently about the risks associated with them. So one being dining in restaurants. I would not recommend dining inside of a restaurant. I have not dined inside of a restaurant at all since the pandemic started. We know that the virus is aerosolized and that being inside increases the risk of getting infected. There have been numerous studies that have shown that. There's a study that just came out which showed that people being inside because of, you know, the poor ventilation can increase the risk of you getting infected. So, you know, when you're sitting inside and you're eating, you're going to take your mask off and a lot of people are not going to put their mask back on between bites, right? So you're increasing your risk of getting infected because of uh, the dynamics of being inside. So I would encourage people if they want to go out and eat, try and find a place where you can sit outside and they have heat lamps and you can stay warm that way. I think that's probably going to be your safest bet at this point in time. What about travel situations? So I know, of course, the recommendation is still to not travel if you can avoid it really in any situation. Um, But if someone is going to travel sometime this month, what would be the way to do that most safely, I guess? Again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reemphasize, you know, we're, we're over 200,000 cases of coronavirus right now in the country. Right now, over 2,000 deaths per day, and that's going to continue to go up. So I would really very much strongly suggest not to travel at this time. If you have to travel, you know, first and foremost, depending on how you're going to travel, try to self-isolate before you travel and try and get tested. You don't want to unknowingly take coronavirus somewhere and get somebody infected, um, a loved one, a family member. So my first piece of advice. And then depending on how you are going to travel, if you can drive, uh, drive. That's going to be probably the safest way to go. And hopefully you don't have to stay somewhere overnight like a hotel or something like that. You know, again, do the things that we've been talking about. So, you know, when you have to get gas, be good with your hand hygiene and mask wearing and um, all those things that we've all been talking about for months now. If you have to travel via airplane, you know, try and see if you can take, again, an off-peak flight where you can try and um, distance yourself as much as possible. Um, It's going to be really important for you to wear your mask Um, the entire flight and use good hand hygiene. And hopefully um, you can be on a flight where they are still blocking off middle seats. Uh, Different airlines have different um, policies and procedures. But 
I think it's really important for people to think about things when they travel. So uh, the thing I always encourage people to think about is what if you travel to a place and you get sick? Are you going to be okay having to potentially get hospitalized in that place? And again, if that place is a place where there are a large number of um, coronavirus infections right now and you get sick, they may not have the capacity to take care of you. So that could be very real. And also different places are instituting different policies right now. Uh, for example, parts of California are requiring you to quarantine when you get there for 14 days. So are you going to be able to do that? Um, you never know what's going to happen when you travel. And so I really urge people to think about that and think about the various scenarios that might come up. Even though our numbers are not at the level that they are in other places, you could go somewhere and get COVID and bring it back here. And that will negatively impact our area, right? And our numbers are going up here. Our hospital is getting more and more COVID patients. And, you know, we've been talking about this and we're concerned that in the next few weeks, you know, we're going to start seeing what other places are seeing. And so, you know, all these things are interrelated and we need to be thinking about that and thinking about how to also best preserve our healthcare system, because as we become more overloaded as well, then that affects, you know, just regular routine healthcare operations. So if our hospital is full of COVID patients and you get into a car accident and come to the emergency room, that's going to affect your care. There may not be an ICU bed for you if you need it. So we all need to think about these things and how it affects all of us. And the fact is, is that we are all in this together and we all need to think about each other during this time. I wanted to ask some questions specific to the COVID-19 vaccine. So we started out this this episode with some information about uh, the first doses likely being available soon, but of course at a very limited number. It will be significantly longer before your average citizen will be, have access. But I know that people already have questions about how it's going to work. The Pfizer vaccine, that's that's the one that we're likely to get in South Carolina here first. How does that vaccine work? The Pfizer vaccine is um, a new type of vaccine. It's called an mRNA vaccine. And um, actually both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine, they're both mRNA vaccines. And um, what they do is they give instructions to ourselves to make a harmless um, piece of the coronavirus spike protein. And the spike protein is found on the surface of the coronavirus and is responsible for entry into human cells. The vaccine is given to humans in their upper arm. And once given, the mRNA enters the nucleus of the cell and then makes that protein piece. And then after this occurs, the cell breaks down the mRNA and then displays that protein piece on its surface. And since the protein is not supposed to be there, the immune starts revving up and recognizes this protein piece by developing antibodies that are specific to this spike protein piece. So then later on, if you are exposed to coronavirus, then you already have these good antibodies that can mount a response to the coronavirus. So you won't get infected, you won't get sick. And then people are going to need to receive that in in two doses. Do we know why that is? And then also, do you have any protection or any benefit after that first dose? Yeah, those are great questions. So the reason for the two shots, my understanding is um, with the first shot, it kind of revs up your immune system a bit. 
And then um, the second shot is the one that really gives you kind of that um, uh, robust antibody response. Um, and that's kind of also what we see with like the symptoms you get. Your um, body's reaction is going to be a bit more after you get that second dose of the vaccine. For the full effect, you're going to need to have both shots. What about for someone who has contracted COVID-19 in the last year? Should they still be getting the vaccine when available? Yeah, so that's another really great question. So yes, they should get the vaccine. They probably don't need to get it urgently because they do have some sort of antibody response. So they don't necessarily need to be the first people in line. However, yes, there's no reason that they shouldn't get the, they don't need to get the vaccine. The thing is, is that we know that people who've had COVID can get COVID again, right? And we also know that the antibody response from the vaccine is probably more robust. What are some of those factors that need to be weighed in that process, which is, of course, an ongoing process of deciding how the vaccine gets distributed and to whom and when? What are some of the important factors that need to be considered in that process? They started kind of putting some of those recommendations out there, the CDC and the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. Um, They had a meeting last week. Also, the National Academy for Science and um, Medicine also, they've had a framework. And so these are ongoing discussions. And we know that at least in the first group of people to get the vaccine being recommended that um, there's about 21 million healthcare personnel in this country. Um, Those need to be the first group of people. Um, And that includes people who work in hospitals, um, people who are working in public health, emergency medical personnel, people in pharmacies, people in outpatient clinics, people who work in home health care, and then also long-term care facility residents and people who work in long-term care facilities, right? So those are the people kind of at the highest risk of getting COVID, right? And so, and then after that, you know, we're trying to figure out kind of who the next group of people are. And that's going to either, you know, going to be probably a combination or overlap of essential workers and adults with high-risk conditions. And so trying to figure out how that's going to go is something that's still a work in progress. Throughout this year, we've we've continued to learn over time more and more about this virus, how it spreads and the symptoms it causes, long-term impacts even. What do you think are some of the, the key things that we've learned maybe in recent months that we didn't know earlier on in the pandemic about the virus? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think um, one of the key things that we know we know now that we didn't know early on is that there's asymptomatic transmission, right? So I think that is really important to know that people can spread it not without having symptoms. And that's also when they're most infectious. I do think that we are going to learn so much more about the long-term effects of this virus. I see people who had COVID months and months ago who are still suffering from a wide range of symptoms. And so really understanding why that is happening and how to best manage it, how to best support them is going to be important. Um, you know, a lot of times we talk about um, people either living or dying, but um, it's really the people who are living with the long-term side effects of the disease that is going to be really important because there are millions of those people now in our country um, and we need to figure out how we can best treat them. And that's going to have long-term consequences for so many aspects of our society from disability standpoint and 
how we um, move forward as a society. And then, you know, just also from taking a broader view, right, all the other consequences that COVID has had on our society from a mental health aspect to the effect it's having on our children, you, you know, education, food insecurity, so many other things. And I think we really need to think about the long-term consequences COVID is having on our society. It's touched every part of our society and really thinking about how we move forward and learn from this pandemic, but also prepare for what inevitably we will have another pandemic. We are a integrated society. We are much more mobile. We are much more connected than we've ever been. And so, you know, looking at our history, we've had more emerging infectious diseases over the last 40 years than we've ever had before. And that's not going to go away. One of the things I wanted to ask about, too, is I think for a lot of people, you know, we're in December now. I'm hearing it called pandemic fatigue is starting to set in that even though uh, case numbers are rising. It's it's really more important than than ever to be taking precautions. People are getting tired. What's something that you want to tell those people that are maybe getting tired, maybe wanting to ease up a little bit at this point? What's something that they should know? Listen, I feel you. I've been in this with you. We've all been in this with you uh, for the last 11 months, right? I get it. I'm tired too. We're all tired. But I'm going to quote Tony Fauci we're right there. The cavalry is coming. We have these vaccines. Now is not the time to let up. We finally have some light at the end of the tunnel. And you guys have made it this long. Hold on for a little bit longer. I understand it's hard not to see your family. It's hard not to see your friends or your loved ones. But COVID is real. And don't let anyone tell you that it's not real. I see it every single day. I've seen young people get sick and die of it. I've had friends and colleagues who have gotten sick and died of it. And it's horrible. I have clinics of patients who have suffered of it, who can't remember things, who still have fevers, who are still struggling. And these were normal functioning people beforehand. You don't want to get this disease and try to hold on for a few more months so we can get this vaccine out to everybody and hopefully try to get back to some semblance of whatever our new normal is going to be. It's not worth it when we've been doing this now for 11 months, when we're hopefully trying to get to the end of it to get sick. You don't want to get sick. That's what I have to say. Those lingering symptoms that some COVID-19 patients are experiencing are one of the things we still don't fully understand about this disease. At MUSC, they're starting a study to look at how this virus is specifically affecting the brain. Reporter Jarrell Floyd joined us to explain more. One of the first things that kind of raised like a lot of experts' eyebrows around that like brain effect was the the uh, the impact on the smell and taste. That was like one of the like first symptoms folks were talking about like in the early days of this pandemic was like oh if you lose your sense of smell 
that's a clear sign that there might be something, you know, COVID related going on. And so from there, um, that, that's where like the interest kind of um, piped up. But then afterwards, when we started to see more cases, people were having issues around brain fog, even after they like are recovering. Some people had even like issues with like memory loss and things like that. And there's a, a term for that, right? When patients start to see that loss of taste and smell, the brain fog, things like that. What's that called? Um, so yeah, that's called neuro-COVID. And, like, and working on this story and talking with like the MUSC researchers, that was my first time ever hearing that term. It was like my first question out the gate when I like was talking to them, like, wait, what is neuro-COVID? And like, because they said it so casually. And yeah, it, it really is. It's like, so with COVID, you know, you have those like, those um, kind of immediate symptoms, a dry cough and um, the, the loss of, of of smell. But afterwards, there's like these after effects that researchers were seeing. And that was the the brain fog, the depression, um, anxiety, even insomnia in some cases. And they started to coin that as neuro COVID. And I'm like, that's terrifying to hear that it has a name. But um, but yeah, it was just like, yeah, I had never heard that term, you know, prior to do, working on this story. So. Yeah. And I think that's one of the interesting things about this and about the virus in general, right? So many of the other symptoms are things that we're used to seeing in other illnesses, but it's those those after effects that you're describing, those impacts on the brain that, I don't know, there seems to be something a little more uh, mysterious or something that we don't quite understand yet about it, right? Yeah, it, and it, it's, it's, it's a terrifying thought because it's like in talking, you know, to these experts, one of the things they're trying to figure out now is what are the, the long-term effects of all of this? Because, you know, right now, okay, you know, we know the brain fog, we know the insomnia, those are like the more immediate after effects, but there, there's like a long-term component to this that we, that is unknown, that we need, that we need to, that researchers are hoping to do more research around. And I think one in particular, I think was like dementia. That was like the first thing that I wanted to ask about was, especially having, you know, talked to folks who, family members who, who've worked with people with Alzheimer's organizations who have um, have done research around it. I was like, you know, are we, are we seeing any kind of impact on, on with COVID and dementia? And the answer is like, we don't know yet. And that's terrifying. And um, that's where kind of like this whole, that whole MUSC brain study kind of came in was like, it's, they want to like add to that, to as much research as we can to like get as much knowledge on the relationship between COVID and the brain. I feel like earlier in the year, I think all, our knowledge was dry cough and the loss of smell and taste. So that was pretty, it feels like that was like as much as we kind of knew about it. it. And then now it's like, now we're getting to this component of like, oh, you know, there's, 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 like, there's a risk for like heart, you know, heart issues, you know, more issues around lung. I've heard stories, you know, people have dealt with organ, organ failure and things like that. And now we're talking about the brain. So it's like every month is something new. And so when you hear like, you know, these patients who are kind of, um, like, you know, I've quote unquote recovered from COVID, but I'm still having issues. Like, I don't feel 100%. It's like, okay, we need that research now to, to learn more. So I, I'm relieved as a reporter to hear that, you know, they're thinking about this kind of stuff and that they are doing this kind of research. But it also makes me anxious because it's like, that, it's that big question mark. How are they actually working through the logistics of doing a study like this also amid a pandemic that is ongoing and continues. For me, that was kind of one of my first questions too, was like, hey, you know, you're doing a study in a pandemic with people who have, re- who have reported having COVID. I'm like, how is that going to work? How are we going to get these people in like a research lab? It's like, it just feels like it's just in- as a whole risk coming with that. And so the unique thing about this MUSC study is that 
it's gonna be at home. So they're gonna like the a patient theoretically would not have to leave their home to participate in this uh, research study. So they're basically they're gonna send mail them out all the necessary equi equipment. So it's like a tablet where they can communicate with doctor. Basically, what they're doing is this part of the body called the vagus nerve. It's basically like this part of the body that, when stimulated, kind of gives out this reaction to tell the body to relax or calm down or to kind of de-stress. And so it's off that stimulating that specific nerve is often used um, with like depression patients. It's kind of like a last resort treatment for folks who are dealing with depression. And so with that, it's like basically it's like this almost like electric pulses are, are hit, hit with this nerve and it kind of tells the body to relax, calm down. They're going to basically take like these almost like earbud stickers type things and put them behind the patient's ear. And so they're going to use that to, to kind of send those electric pulses and, and like stimulate that vagus nerve. And so theoretically, so they don't know, they, you know, this is still an ongoing research study, so they don't know what the impact is going to be. But, you know, the good news would be that, oh, I had issues with brain fog or I had this neuro COVID symptoms. I went through this study and and it's I got the, the vagus nerve stimulated and these symptoms are gone. And so that would be kind of be like a red flag to researchers like, hey, we need to be doing more with this to figure out if this is a potential treatment. And that's going to, that means more studies and more uh, research. And that's going to also illuminate more answers and questions around, you know, COVID's relationship with the brain. So right now, this, this sort of study is kind of like a, 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 a feeler, as researchers, researchers were trying to explain to me, it's just to see, you know, if something does happen. I'm wondering, as, as someone who has written about COVID throughout the year and about health, are there any questions that this raised for you or just any questions that, that you personally are looking out for? I think the big for me is probably always going to be that dementia component. And is there an impact, you know, with COVID on dementia? Because, I mean, even before all of this, it was, you know, that was that's such a complicated condition for folks to deal with. There was a, a lot of already a lot of research you know, trying to get done with that and trying to, to learn more about it. We, there's still, still so much about dementia we don't know already. And so now we have this whole, um, almost a year now of a, dealing with this pandemic that could have, a, you know, an additional impact on this disease. So it's like, my goodness. So it's like, what is this going to mean for, for, you know, for families who already have that anxiety around having a dementia risk? You know, they don't know for sure if they have it or not, but, you know, what is that going to mean for them? What is it going to mean for, you know, families who are currently dealing with it or in the early stages? So that's kind of, for me, is like the big question. I, just, I really want to know what those, and, that, and that, may, that may be years down the road, but I do want to know if what that long-term effect is, because, you know, because that, that's, that's serious, that's scary. Another reminder for our listeners that we are giving away a free pair of AirPods to one of our newsletter subscribers. The link to sign up is always on our Understand SC homepage. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Find us on Twitter at Understand SC. Thanks for listening. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our music is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music on Spotify at Billy Fountain. We'd love to know what you think of this show. You can reach us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or on Twitter at understandsc. If you're a fan of this show, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. 
Keep up with the latest headlines at postingcourier.com. We'll see y'all next week. Thank you.